Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. This is your host, Randy Kim. And it's great to be back again. This time to share with you this new third season with the theme, Where Do We Stand? 2020 has been a tumultuous year for everyone. The COVID-19 pandemic has turned our world upside down, and it exposed many of the societal inequalities that have impacted many communities. The virus has shattered the lives of so many that have lost their loved ones, and sadly, it is continuing to make its deadly impact. Then came the murder of George Floyd, which galvanized black communities and non-black allies to protest against police brutality, systemic racism, and anti-blackness. In the midst of the protests, the Black Lives Matter movement has strengthened its influence by pressuring elected officials, corporations, academic institutions, among others, to be held accountable for their policies and behavior that are rooted in white supremacy and demanding changes to the system that has left their communities vulnerable and unprotected. The upcoming election is also nearing, as is the 2020 census, which will determine the future of America in the coming years. In the past four years of the Trump administration, we have seen movements become strengthened from Black Lives Matter, Me Too, reproductive justice, immigration rights, anti-deportation, indigenous rights, March for Our Lives, among others. What does that mean for the Asian Pacific Islander communities? Where does our community's voice stand in the face of 2020? This year, in the wake of COVID-19, APIs have experienced an increasing number of hate crimes against them. In a recent report from Stop AAPI Hate, there have been a reported 1,800-plus reported incidents of anti-Asian hate crimes. In California alone, 832 reported incidents of anti-Asian hate crimes occurred in the past three months. Asian small businesses in Chinatown communities across the U.S. were the first affected by the pandemic. The rise of anti-Asian hate crimes make us wonder, are we ever enough? Will we ever belong? Officer Tao among American police officer is currently charged for being an accomplice to George Floyd's murder. His role in Floyd's death confronts issues of the model minority myth, the good immigrant narrative, and the anti-blackness and colorism issues that have long been tied to the API community. The 2020 election has seen the increasing rise of API voters, which is now the fastest growing demographic in America. But despite this, API voters are often left out of the discussion in mainstream media and are often not included in national polling and seen as other. What does this mean when the API voters are still not considered in issues affecting their communities? We ask ourselves, where do we stand? So for this season, I have invited several guests, one for each episode, as they talk about their experiences with COVID-19 on issues with anti-blackness and other racial issues. And this upcoming election, they share their stories, their work, and their hopes of helping to create a just society. For this third season, I want to thank my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, for coming back to sponsor this season. They are a Viet-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin 
hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride, visit them at www.laurenceandargyle.com or on Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle or on their Facebook page. So, I will share with you a story I did right after the Charlottesville protests in 2017. The story is called The Family Dinner Table. The Middle East should be blown up. The Japanese deserve the atomic bombing. I am sick and tired of having to pay for handouts for poor, lazy black people. I came into the U.S. the right way. The Mexicans who came here illegally should get out of here. Our black president keeps screwing our country over, and I hate him. Do these words sound familiar to you? Well, in my case, welcome to my family's dinner table. For many summers, my family and I would visit my relatives down in Jacksonville, Florida, and in the Alabama Gulf Shores. Growing up, it was what I always looked forward to each summer. The allure of Mickey Mouse, sunny weather, being on my grandfather's fishing boat, having fun with my older cousins were all the makings of many of my childhood moments. As I got older, my trips going there became fewer, and in that time, I began to see the disconnect between my life and the rest of my family. I was the first U.S.-born child on both sides of my family. I grew up in a predominantly white middle-class suburb. From the moment I started school, I soon realized at a young age of how different I was from my classmates, and that some of them reminded me that the way I looked and the way I talked would never allow me to be accepted. These same classmates were with me from elementary through high school and wasted no time picking apart about my physical features, which I could not control. Their long-time torment of me became so bad that there were times when I hated my darkness, my skin, my hair, my eyes. When I look back on the very few middle school and high school photos that existed of me, I saw a past version of me that was unhappy, could not smile, and felt unattractive and insecure. However, what saved me from those long periods of self-hatred were the times when I would visit the rest of my family down south. It gave me reasons to celebrate my cultural identity. The sounds of Vietnamese and Khmer music blasting at our family parties, the playful moments that I had with my cousins, and the large variety of traditional family dishes on hand were all part of these celebrations. I felt proud to be a part of my extended family. It was one of the few places that I knew that was safe for me. As I entered into my adult years, I began to notice the differences between myself and my family. From my transition as an adult, my conversations with them no longer centered on my needs and wants as a child. It would be hearing their political views of the world. It is through those views that I became exposed to their racism, colorism, anti-blackness, Islamophobia, LGBTQ phobia that they believed in. On my father's side, my older aunt, who I saw as a second mother figure, would often make remarks about her discomfort around black people and other ethnicities that she had no understanding of. Her three adult children, my cousins, despite the fact that they all went to a U.S. public school, and came to the U.S. as refugees from Vietnam, would also carry those views. The oldest of the three married an older white man who harbored many white supremacist views, one of which he firmly expressed to me 
his hopes that white men should never lose control of this country. They both have two children who are mixed and now entering their teenage years. My last few visits there have been uncomfortable for me. Never mind the fact that driving down south, I am reminded by the blatant displays of Confederate flags. And now, with Trump signs and bumper stickers added to the Southern aesthetics. But those displays have also transferred those views into the homes of my family members, places that were once safe for me. During our family dinners, I was baited by my older cousins about Chicago politics, the city's love for President Obama, and their disdain for other ethnic groups. I found myself having to play defense when I wanted nothing to do with engaging on their right-wing views. Those moments were upsetting to me as I sat through hearing their insults after insults about other ethnic groups. I spent many evenings challenging them and trying to find a way to pull them out of it, but to no avail. My brothers would also try to do the same, but to no avail. It was always the old cultural excuse in the Southeast Asian culture of, well, we are older than you, so you are not going to disrespect us. For every minute that I am in their home, I cannot help but think about my friends who are the recipients of their attacks. I think about the children that they are passing this on to. I wondered if their kids would one day be able to disavow their parents' hateful rhetoric or possibly be the ones that hurt and bully their classmates. One of my young relatives, Victoria, is quite popular among her diverse group of friends. She's a bit outspoken, protective, and one who proudly brings Vietnamese food for lunch, even if it risks getting made fun of by her peers. Her brother Alex, on the other hand, obsesses over video games. He's a bit timid and shy around people, but I at once found out that he carried a strong interest in learning about military weapons and history specifically to World War II, the Nazis, and Adolf Hitler. I was frightened. Perhaps maybe it's all the Medal of Honor games occupying his mind in excitement, much like other male adolescents his age. On the other hand, I think about some of the people who have committed well-known hate crimes, such as Charlottesville, and that their hatred was fostered from their early youths. Could Alex be that person? Could he be one of the bullies at school, much like the ones that tormented me growing up? It is a thought that I live with, not only for him, but for my younger relatives who have parents that are shaping up their views. My relationship with my family members no longer exists these days. As liberating as it can feel to not have to deal with their toxic views, there is a good part of me that wonders if there is ever a possibility that they can be redeemed. These are people that once looked after me and my family. I took care of their kids. And my relatives took the time to tell me that they loved me. Whenever I would leave, I hugged them and wished them well. They aren't the only people that carry anti-black racism and other serious racist views. They extend to other members of my family and community members that I grew up with. How is it that they can all harbor those feelings when they themselves were refugees from Vietnam and with family in Cambodia? How is it that they came to this conclusion after escaping from their homeland when U.S. interventions resulted in putting despotic leaders 
bullets, knives, sexual violence, bombs, landmines, and the toxicating smell of Agent Orange into the final resting places of an estimated 650,000 civilians in Vietnam. Or in places like Cambodia and Laos, where the secret bombings and mass genocides of our people were happening. How is it that they could carry these racist and xenophobic attitudes when the KKK once protested against refugees from living in the Gulf Shores and that their skin color is an open target for violence? From a country that has held long anti-Asian views from the Chinese Exclusion Act to the colonial destruction of Asian Pacific lands to the Japanese internment camps, my community, as well as other Asian communities here, must understand the impact of our history and how we are never shielded from hate crimes, harmful stereotyping, and policies that impact the growth of our communities, even when the focus is on other ethnic communities. Enabling white supremacy attitudes within our communities in the end will bring more harm to us. Every day, I fear for the safety of my friends who have identities that are an open threat. Every day, I am frustrated that I no longer feel safe with my family. Every day, I fear for my younger relatives who are not adult yet. Could be the next ones to cause harm. Every day, I wonder if it's even possible for me to talk them out of their cruelty and remind them why I cared about them in the first place. Every day, I think about the possibilities. What can one of the possibilities bring for tomorrow? Thank you. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunmi Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Bunmi underscore Chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you.